welcome to another episode of the Third Person Podcast. Um, my name is Chris Milhouse, and joined as always by Mr. Daryl C. Hammond and Hello. Jim Search. How are Yo. you guys? You know, it's uh, another day, another day, another dollar, Chris. Yes, sir. Gentlemen, we have a hot show today. We have a hot show. For any new listeners we may have for this podcast, uh, I am Chris Millis. I am a stand-up comedian of 15 years. Uh, Daryl Hammond needs no introduction, but I'll give it to him anyway. He is the current announcer for Saturday Night Live and 14-year cast member of SNL. And Jim Search is our producer, who's also a very funny stand-up comedian. Uh, And we have a great show today. We will be joined by a a, a legendary, I will, I'll go ahead and say legendary, but, uh, I dare, I, I would dare to say, uh, just a really, uh, great newscaster. Mr. Jake Tapper will be joining us today. Uh, and for those of you who have not already done so, please review us, give us a review, uh, throw us five stars. If you feel so inclined, uh, make sure you add us on the social media. Let's get all that out of the way, uh, real quick. Uh, I am at Chris Milhouse, Daryl's at Daryl C. Hammond and Jim is at Jim search. Please add us, share our posts, and help us spread the word of our podcast. Because we are growing, and thanks to a lot of you for a lot of great comments. I keep seeing them. They're amazing. Uh, and, uh, man, I got to say, guys, uh, I was a little nervous today. I, uh, I felt like <laughs> almost like this is like a date. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm wearing a college shirt. Uh, you know, I put the product in my hair. I legitimately was like, I don't know what kind of shirt I should be wearing. What I thought I you got a... I thought you got a haircut. I'm gonna wear. <laughs> yeah. I thought you got spruced up for this, man. I just actually put in some effort. I'm just not wearing a hoodie and a Yankee hat for once in my life. <laughs> How do you feel, Daryl? Are you ready? Uh, you ready to uh, rock and roll with Mr. Jake Tapper? Uh, I'm wearing a suit jacket, and I'd say about three or four times today, I've actually shouted out the word Eureka. <laughs> Eureka. That's how good this, That's how much I love my life. Eureka. All the neighbors are like, wow, he must be doing science or something there. I don't know. <laughs> that's right. Discoveries. Hearing uh, last night's moonbeams home in a jar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I'm in uh, Manhattan Beach at my friend Julie's house using her laptop. and Yeah, big thanks to Julie. The ocean is pretty impressive. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's gorgeous. I gotta say, Southern California has the best sunsets uh, I've ever seen. It's an, it's incredible and just beautiful landscaping. And I guess there's a reason why people live there. Why so many people flock down there. <laughs> it's a very popular place. Very popular place, boys. Uh, before we are joined by Mr. Jake Tapper, I want to plug a couple of shows real quick. Uh, we are all performing coming up. Uh, Jim and I are going to be on the same show this Saturday, Memorial Day weekend, the 29th. We're going to be performing at a place called 235th Avenue. It's an amazing rooftop venue. Um, the light up is killer. Uh, Melissa Villasenor from Saturday Night Live. Uh, we have Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show, Jessica Carson from Comedy Central, and, uh, of course, Jim opening the show and me i am hosting it's gonna be a killer show it's almost sold out so guys go get your tickets right now if you're listening to this and uh daryl will be performing in las vegas fabulous las vegas coming up uh, on june 5th at a place called notoriety at neonopolis that's again at notoriety at neonopolis uh he'll be performing with mr jeremy piven which would be a really cool show so make sure you go get tickets for that you excited for vegas daryl huh um yeah i am i i'm just uh, i can't tell if i should drive or fly 
Mm. No, you know, it's it's a lot less effort to fly. Honestly, I, I always have that same battle in my head when I lived in L.A. Going to Vegas, the you know, it's a four to five hour drive, you know, from L.A. and that's without traffic. Uh, flying, it's what forty five minutes. You know, a lot less hassle. Right. That's uh, you know, with the traffic, it can turn into a six. I mean. I just drove to San Francisco and there was a traffic jam and it was like a nine hour ordeal. Oh, Jesus brutal. That's yeah. the one thing I hated about living in uh, LA, man. It's just that the traffic was just, oof, it was brutal. Like, you know, like, like just stuck in a traffic jam. You can't pee for five hours. And I, you know, of course we're, you know, we're chugging coffee and, you know, talking and shit. And that was, that sucked. Yeah, I guess I'll, I, I guess you sold me on flying. I'm going to do that. I think you should, man. I, I think you should. I mean, might as well. Uh, you'll, you know, you'll make back the money from the flight and the, and the, on the slot machines. You know, hitting, hitting the roulette table. You gamble? Do you do any? Uh, do you, you play any games while you're there? No, I don't. You know, the last time I was in Vegas, I played a show for a group of high rollers, and in front of me was a Maryland impersonator, and then an Elvis impersonator. And then I came out and saw in the audience these nude women painted gold walking around. So, you know, you can't do comedy in a whorehouse, Chris. When guys are in that state with a gorgeous woman in their arms, they're not as likely to want to have a lot to yuck it up. So I, I tanked so bad they, they didn't even look at me. Oh, and so I was supposed to do 15, but I did seven because I was like, okay, forget it. I walked off stage and I go, you can keep your check. And she goes, why? I go, they didn't even look at me. <laughs> she, goes, she goes like this. She goes, so what? Welcome to Vegas. Yeah, no shit, man. I, I think the only thing I did is kind of similar. I did a burlesque show at a comedy. There was a comedy club mixed with burlesque in Vegas years ago. And it was like, all these dudes in the audience who are just like, they're like, yeah, we're watching all these girls, you know, get half naked and whatever. And then, uh, then they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, well now here's a guy who's going to tell some jokes. So, you know, go. (laughs) Just No one gave a fuck. No, they were just no one cares. The girls put them back. (laughs) Physiologically, it's almost impossible to laugh when you're, uh, when you've got a stiffy, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no shit. It's just fake. You're like, you're ruining my heart on, man. Come on, yeah. put the girls back out there. You're like, all right. But uh, everybody go see Daryl. I, I hope Jake Tapper doesn't listen to this part of the show, but. <laughs> you know, I'm just Jake, I promise real. you were very professional. I promise. Uh, hey, I was out there watching those guys with those naked women, and they were. I was like, no, not going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm excited, uh, you know, to have Jake on today. And, uh, and like I say, let me, I'm like, this, this guy was hard to get. He was a hard guest to get. And, you know, shout out to his uh, PR person. That's a good PR person who, you know, kind of makes you earn it, Make, you know, kind of protects your client and really makes you earn, you know, to get this person on. And, uh, you know, I still can't believe we did. He's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, he's, yeah, you know, we, we, we had to be relentless and yet not annoying. That was the fine line I had to ride when trying to get Jake on our show. But uh, he graciously agreed to be on this podcast and uh, he's ready to join us now. So what do you say we let him in? Good. Hey, Daryl. How's it hey, going, Hey, Jake. So great to see you. Good to see you. Look at you. Look like a jazz, a jazz promo, <laughs> a jazz, a leading jazz authority who's going to yeah, me, I'm sorry. You're going to take me under your wing. You're going to take <laughs> me under your wing and, and teach me the ways of jazz. 
<laughs> yeah, or, or someone could teach me too because I know nothing of jazz. But I'm at the beach. The light is so much that I can't see without sunglasses. So pardon my appearance. And what about yeah. the chapeau? The chapeau have anything to do with it? Is that, <laughs> is that also part of the beach? I think you look cool and you know you look cool, but you're embarrassed that you look cool. So I don't just just and, embrace it. He's got like the Blues Jake, Brother thing going on. And yet, Jake, cool today it's the best I it's the best I can do. It's the best I can do today. Was be embarrassed yeah. to be cool, but at least it's okay. You know, just before we get restarted here, real quick, um, we are just honored to have you on, and we really oh. appreciate your time. And you know, it's it's really just awesome that you took the time to be on a podcast. So thank you very much for being here. Oh, it's my honor. I was psyched to do it as soon as, uh, as soon as you guys asked, I just, uh, getting by the CNN public relations machine can sometimes be difficult. So I knew the book was coming and I knew if we just, if we just waited, we could do it then because that's when I'm, you know, I have a little bit more power, slightly more power. I, I gave a shout out in our uh, earlier. We do like a little pre-show thing, and I gave a shout out to your PR person because right. you know she uh, she you could definitely tell she's doing a great job. Like she she's protective of her client, but she also yes. wants you to be happy at the same time. So uh, exactly. you know she makes she made me earn it. She made me earn it. To get you <laughs> on with, 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 so I appreciate her. Um, and we're gonna get to your book, The Devil May Dance, which is uh, you know in bookstores now, which is I heard nothing but great things about. But before uh, we jump into that. I just want to ask you real quick, uh, you know, look, you did an amazing job. You've always done an amazing job as a newscaster throughout your many years that I've seen you on CNN. But uh, I got to give you props during the election specifically. You were just incredible. And the job that your whole team did over at CNN was phenomenal. And I just want to know, my first question is, how hard was it for you during the Trump presidency with everything that kept coming out, no matter what, for the four years, how hard was it for you to not just call Trump an absolute fucking idiot. <laughs> it wasn't, it, that was not difficult for me to not do that. I, I will say though, I mean like, the thing is this, like it is uncomfortable when a politician puts somebody in a position, a journalist of taking a side. It's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. That is not is. what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to say, this is what these people are saying. And this is what the other, the opponents are saying. And, here are the facts as we see them and you make your own judgment. But President Trump, uh, from the moment, you know, from his candidacy, was determined to lie and make basic bedrocks of our society, like facts and truth and institutions and human decency, into partisan footballs. Um, and that made, I think it took a while for people to adjust to it, journalists to adjust to it. I think a lot of people never did. Which is, you know, we're allowed to say, <clears throat> no, you can't tell four congresswomen of color to go back where they came from when they all come from the United States. Well, one of them was a refugee, but, but they're, I mean, it's racist. And so yeah. taking, you know, standing up for certain basic decencies is uncomfortable. And election night, same thing with, we all knew he was going to come out and declare victory before all the votes were counted. I mean, that, it was it had literally been reported a few days before that that was his plan. And just to come out and say, that's not what's going on. We still have a lot of votes to count. He's trying to do that, you know, is uh, it's not comfortable. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. So thank you. I'm glad you appreciated it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I know uh, I speak for Daryl when we say we really we watched it, you know, at least I did watch a lot of the coverage and uh uh, I I, re- I really wanted to know about the. I think at one point you, you used the term shit show on air. Which... No, no, no. I did not use the term shit show. 
I, this is what happened. Um, it was after the first debate, uh, mm. which was, which was a shit show. They came out to me. I just, <laughs> I described it as a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train rack. Okay. And then Dana Bash, oh. my colleague and co-anchor, she called it a shit show. That's what happened. That's what that's 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 what I got you. All right. Well, I was I was I was wondering which one of you had that in a back pocket and was waiting just to drop that in there. No, she was gonna say shit show, so I knew I had to come up with my own thing. I knew she was gonna say shit show, so um, that's how I coined my my little phrase. Yeah, absolutely. I you know, uh I was I was talking to Daryl. I've um, I've heard a few of your interviews recently and uh I didn't know, man. Like, I mean, outside of uh, of newscasting and outside of uh, you know uh, being an author, a successful author, <clears throat> do some pretty good impressions, man. I, I've heard some impressions recently. Yeah, I'm not going to do an impression in front of the master. The master. <laughs> Why not? He I enjoys saw you, I saw Daryl do an impression of Clinton in front of Clinton that was so good, even though it was kind of risque that. Even he laughed. Do you remember this, Daryl? Yes, I do. Uh, was it was it when Clinton was injured and on a crutch? It was, was it correspondence dinner. It was a correspondence dinner, and you said, "If you would, you it, you were talking to a, a a lovely woman, and you said, if you would just take off your top, we could solve racism." <laughs> yeah, I said, I said. Uh, Something like that. I said, Bill Clinton, and there was my big mistake. I called him Bill. You know, he's the president. Right. And I corrected myself because you could hear the audience kind of shudder. And when I went, Bill Clinton, and they went, so, you know, the king and his court shuddered. But I said, President Clinton is, let's see, the only guy in the world who could say to a woman and get away with it, you know, if you'd only take your clothes off and let me see you naked. There would be no more racism. <laughs> I, swear, I swear to God. Let let let's 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 let freedom ring. <laughs> he did that in front of Bill Clinton. He did it in front, a, like he was literally feet away, and it was so yeah. good that nobody could be mad about. It. I think he laughed. I think he enjoyed. He did. It. He did. You know, I remember um, when I said that he was sitting next to an African American woman uh, sitting on the other side of him who appeared to be his friend. And I saw that Clinton machinery whir and click and Clinton reaches over and, 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 and hugs her. And it was a media storm. And I was like, I just saw it. I just saw it. I saw that thing that I've heard journalists talk about that thing he does when he takes the room, really remarkable moment for me. And, you know, I'm, I graduated college with a 2.1 average. And I, <laughs> I mean, I'm in the Oval Office thinking, what the hell am I doing here? You know, like, you know what I'm saying? And so Clinton made me feel like I was one of the most important things that had ever happened to him. Yeah, he's, a, he's, he's, um, well, first of all, can I just say the remarkable, like, he was in on the joke, the, the butt of the joke, also willing to, to, to one up you, to take your joke and say, you think that's funny. I'm going to hug a black woman to play into your joke, to play into it as, I mean, the implication was like, I could say it to this woman right here. That right. I mean, that was kind of, I mean, and he could charm the stripes off a zebra, that guy. He took the room, you know, there's this, um, I used to be friends, I guess I'm 
you know, I still am very fond of Jamie Gangel, and she's told me one time about that thing he does, man, that thing he does. And I seem to recall a conversation about Cheney saying, you know, listen, just don't let the guy on camera, man. Just don't let him on camera. <laughs> you know, like, let's don't act like the guy's not going to take take the world just by talking, because he does take the world just by talking. I mean, when I met him the first time, I, I, I was dressed up as Clinton. I was in the Oval Office dressed up as Clinton. <clears throat> and I said to him, I'm not going to even try to act like I don't feel stupid. That's the only thing I could think of to say. I feel very stupid. I don't know <laughs> what to say to you at this time. And, you know, I don't know if you ever noticed this about Clinton, but Clinton gets in your personal space. He gets really oh, yeah. close to you. Real close. And Biden and does looked, that too. Huh? Biden does that too. Is that he right? Re- he gets right in your grill. Yeah. What is that? What is that? Some anyway. style old school politician move, you know? Like an LBJ thing. Yeah. Just like, but, but not uh, some of its intimidation, some of its connection. Obama did not do it. Bush did not do it. Trump did definitely did not do it. Trump mm-hmm. was a germaphobe. But Clinton yeah. and Ben Biden were, were like real close talkers. Yeah, so Clinton is like this close to my face, and I said, "I, I don't, I'm not going to try to act like I don't look stupid." And he he leans in and he goes, "Daryl, I think you look terrific. I really do." And I almost said, "Okay, am I going to have sex with you? Are are we? Is this where I drop trowel here? Like, is that what? Like, what in the world kind of power was that?" Wow. He's not like a normal human. I mean, a lot of these guys are not a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, the first one, there's, there's, there's so many different levels of this, but like sometimes you meet people that are super famous and they act just like normal people. And then Mm -hmm. that's great. You know, Um, like you seem that way. And Mm -hmm. some, some people you meet and they're super famous. And it's like, like when I, I remember when I met uh, one time I, I met Gwyneth Paltrow, I met her at a, I, I, I did a scene for the show, the politician and mm-hmm. I met her. And that's like, she is like this ethereal being who just mm-hmm. looks like a million bucks and like had, you know, just whatever. And uh, she's obviously a star. She's even if she weren't an actress, she would be, who is that? You know? Yes. And, and then there are politicians who are like that, but even more, but even crazier, not crazy in like in a, in a psychological sense, but crazier and just like on another level of ego, of being, of, I mean, you really have to be, to think that you should run the world and mm-hmm. have the confidence, I'm going to run for office to run mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Donald Trump, they all kind of have this thing where it's it's like they're not really human being level like they're a different kind of creature like men in black like they're just from the they're aliens Mm -hmm. i mean my i remember sitting in trump's office with him talking to him about uh, florence florence zigfeld of the big broadway producer that did all the zigfeld follies but who started out um as a, a monstrous failure but still believed in himself and you know and, and trump has always had that thing where his brain, you throw a fact at, at him that he doesn't like, and his brain will launder it. It'll become something else. He yeah. doesn't get put down by signs that say, 
bridge out up ahead. Okay. It's like Tom Brady has great thinking, the way he thinks and approaches life with his positive attitudes and the way he, you know, launders reality. But Trump is on a whole nother bird when it comes to that stuff. Because I used to say, where's this guy get energy come from? And I realized one day he loves being Donald Trump. He loves it. Yeah. And it's fun for him. And I, Tom Brady I, would stop if he saw the sign. Right. Yeah. Tom Brady would be like, well, the bridge is out, honey. We, babe, the bridge is out. We got to We got to go another way. But Donald Trump said, keep he's going to keep going. He's going to keep going. The bridge is not going to be out. It's not out. That's right. <laughs> and and I don't know how you feel about him. I, I, I felt like he's like a masterful. The way he could speak that left his listeners feel, oh, yeah. I did get screwed over. I did get mistreated. I have been lied to. I have been put down and, and make them and sell that point. Um, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, there is, there is a brilliance to him. And, and I never, I, when I, um, <clears throat> I mean, he is, I mean, first of all, he is the only person in the history of the United States to have been elected president without having been elected to anything before or served in the military period period i mean the, the last guy <clears throat> who, who was elected president who had hadn't won who hadn't run for anything before had just won world war ii for us <laughs> right that was the last one so i mean there is there is a there's always been a charm and a magnetism that he had i i think that obviously that uh lost its appeal for a lot of people over time once they saw the job he did but it was not difficult to see that he had something that people were fascinated by just from how you know television ratings everybody everybody craps on tv news and and also newspapers or whatever for covering trump the way that we did in 2015 2016 and i'm willing to hear and acknowledge all of those criticisms but i will also say that one of the things that people avoid when they when they put things on things politicians do for votes or things TVs TV networks do for ratings is you're forgetting the people on the other end of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember Barack Obama in 2007 2008 like people could not get enough of him. I remember the ratings for Barack Obama. They I mean I remember like you know working in TV news like the ratings for Obama were just unbelievable. And that you know go ahead I've often wondered what it would be like if Churchill had this sort of social media cable, 24-hour cable TV. Like, people couldn't get enough of that guy. Yeah. And it's true of Trump. Whether you love him or you hate him, you're passionate about him one way or another. People can't get enough, couldn't get enough, still could, still can't get enough. He's just too interesting. He's re He reviles, he's reviling, or he's uplifting. He's part madman. He's part messiah. What's not the love? If you're I do home, think. I do think people are. I, th I I wonder how much of that is still there. I, I know his hold on the Republican Party is strong, and then according to polls, his uh, <clears throat> Republican voters still support him a, a great deal. But uh, without, I, I don't know that the ratings are like. I'd have to go look. I might be wrong, but I don't know that the ratings are like unbelievable when he pops on the Judge Judy show or 
Judge Janine show rather, or when he goes on Newsmax or One America, what all these things. When he puts out a statement on his on his blog, I don't know that the stuff is just like. I don't know that it, that the grip is still there. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's tens of millions of Americans adore him and he's far more popular than I'll ever be. But I just mean like, I don't comparing him to him. I don't know that it's still yeah. there. And if they're not letting him on social media and it's tough to see him do these minor events that don't look presidential and he doesn't sound presidential. There was one with, I think it was like a, a fundraiser for animal cruelty. And he doesn't, it's like, he ain't the president no more. And yeah. after a while, it starts mattering when you're looking. It goes, oh, some of the some of the sheen has been tarnished, you know. Especially because he thought it was a fundraiser in favor of animal cruelty. So it was a little, <laughs> it was the, 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 the remarks didn't really jive with the audience. <clears throat> <clears throat> do, you, um, I, do you ever, do you ever, Jake, do you ever find, like, I mean, because of, you know, how, CNN kind of, you know, covered like, you know, it felt more left leaning, obviously, uh, while watching it. But you guys did a great job of obviously reporting facts. And that's the whole thing is a lot of people were, you know, you know Trump sides get mad, but you're like, uh, these are the, just facts that we're trying to, you know. Yeah, I mean, portray. in the Trump era, Mitt Romney was left leaning. Liz Cheney is left leaning. I mean, like it, it, yeah. he, you know, the the concept of the Overton window, the idea that that things uh, adjust like what is so. Uh, sociologically acceptable to discuss changes over time with the Overton window uh, raising and lowering. And like, I mean, by making facts and decency partisan, like I said earlier, I mean, all of a sudden liberals are rooting for Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney and like very concerned. I mean, Liz, Ch it's not even about left and right anymore. Really? I mean, because Liz Cheney is more conservative than Donald Trump. Liz yeah. Cheney is more conservative than the woman who took her place in Republican leadership. I mean, it's, it's not even about ideology or partisanship. It's just about whether or not Donald Trump and his lies are acceptable. I mean, yeah, in my view, sorry for interrupting. No, no, no. The, you're, you're correct. I, I want to interject and ask a question. Did the Washington post end up settling on a figure of the number of times the president had told an untruth? Was there a they, number? They did. I think it I want, I want now I'm going to Google it, but I mean, because I don't want to get it wrong, but I thought, I thought it was, it was definitely in the tens of thousands. Let me do final count, <laughs> final count. Uh, and and the, thing, the thing that gets me is how does he know he can get away with that? How does 30, he know? 30,573. I was going to say 30,000. <laughs> then I thought that sounded too nuts. It couldn't have been 30,000. Oh, yes, 30,573 false or misleading claims, and nearly half of them just in his last year. I mean, that's going out on top. I mean, he left it all on the field. You got to give him <laughs> you got to give him that. Like you thought he was lying early on. I was writing a speech the other day for this media this uh, uh, journalist group, and I went back and traced um his war on journalists. And it really is amazing how much everything is just a path. He starts off, he's banning a couple publications, the Des Moines Register, badmouthing a couple reporters. Next thing you know, uh, he's elected. He says, he, he names like five or six media or outlets and said, these are the enemies of the people. Not all. And then, and then it becomes, they're all the enemy of the people. I mean, everything is this evolution. 
So the same thing with lies, 30,570. Yeah, and also the introduction of the idea of the phrase and just the idea for people to consider of fake news. Yeah. It could be fake. Are we sure this is true? Fox is saying something different. And so muddying the waters also helped him as well. But I mean, the guys, you know, he, I've studied Huey P. Long, the Louisiana governor, or, uh, I guess governor who was assassinated or senator. But I've studied some of his speeches and, and Trump's got that thing where he's like, it's not me there after it's you. Right. I'm just in the way. Yeah. And look, I mean, a lot. I, I would say this early on in the Trump presidency and also during the Trump campaign in 2016, he wasn't wrong about everything he was saying. I mean, his basic premise, if you strip away the racism and the demagoguery, which is, of course, a big thing to strip away. But just to bear with me for one second, um, is that Washington, the, the, the fix is in. Mm-hmm. The fix is in. The fix is in. They they screw you on the trade deals. The fix is in. They screw you on the border. The fix is in. Washington's a swamp. You know the fix is in. I forget what the fourth one was, but but and it was just like first of all, two of the four were Bernie Sanders positions, two on trade deals and the swamp. I mean, they, so that's you know. And then the other two was just look. If you live by the border, you probably have strong feelings about how the government hasn't done enough to protect your property and 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 the rest. So. It wasn't like he was wrong ideologically or, or policy-wise on everything he was saying. And people do have a reason for feeling like the government has screwed them, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. They do. The, the, the entire middle class of this country has been carved out, but it's, it's been going on for decades. But both parties have been responsible. You know, my friend, uh, several years ago, my friend Julie and I, whose house I'm at right now, went to Toledo. Julie, Julie who? Julie, Julie is Mulholland. Is it? Okay. Julie I, thought maybe was, I thought it was a, you know, Julia Louise Dreyfus or, you know, somebody. No, was just <laughs> Julia Mulholland. We went to Toledo and um, the town was like a ghost town. This is like three or four. Exactly. Years ago. Yeah. And and they weren't locking up jewelry or liquor. They were also locking up baby formula and diapers. And Trump walks in and goes, hey, you guys got screwed. And they're like, yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, and that inaugural address, that brilliant inaugural address, America first, America first, brilliant. I mean, I'm sorry. I I know people call him dumb, but I mean. Oh, no, he's not dumb. He's brilliant. He's not intellectual, um, but neither was George W. Bush. I mean, I think one of the differences is that George W. Bush was smart. He just never really worked that hard until he became president and then he became president and then and then he did work hard i mean you can disagree with a lot of things he did but he and rove were having book reading contests you know towards the end of the presidency trump is not intellectual and he's also he also doesn't recognize the danger of his ignorance which i think is a problem i mean daryl i know enough of you to know that you like me are keenly aware of your deficits and ways in which you fall short and that you aspire to make up for them by working hard, mm-hmm. right? That's what I do. I mean, I, wor- I work very, very hard. And I've said to people about my novel, like, I don't think I'm the best writer in the world or the most creative person in the world. But what separates me from the average person out there who wants to write a novel and hasn't is I sat down and wrote it. 
right? That's that's the difference. Yeah. Well, you I heard you on Morning Joe talk about you tried to put in what a, an hour a day. 15 minutes, minimum of 15 oh, minutes. 15 minutes, brilliant. Yeah, even if it's just 15 minutes, by the end of the week, you got an hour 45, that's three or four pages, that's something. And you got to force yourself to do it. Yeah, because, you know, it's if you're doing 15 minutes, you might do 25. Right, exactly. But just, it's sort of like like yoga, just, you got to get on the mat, just get on the mat. Did you ever read yourself- Norm, Norm MacDonald's novel? I have not. It's really good. I bet. He, he, I mean, he's, he's a, he's a quirky, interesting guy, but I mean, he sat down and he wrote this book, you know? Yeah. But you're, yeah. yeah and, and your book touching on that period, that sort of headlong, that sort of March to November 22nd, 1963, when Kennedy's shot from somewhere in Dealey Plaza, that thing with Bobby going after the mob that thing where Sinatra wants to put a heli, heli, helipad, 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 yeah, <laughs> so that Kennedy can stay with him, and Bobby interfering with that, and understand Mr. Sinatra was really disenchanted. Yeah, well, that was when I heard that story. I was like, oh my god, I got to write about this. I got to, you know, Charlie and Margaret, the characters in my first book. He's a congressman, and she's a zoologist's wife, and that's the first one takes place in the fifties during Eisenhower and. McCarthy. And then when I was uh, on the book tour, I heard that story that you just told, which is a real story. It really happened. You really had a helipad installed. Mm-hmm. And, and look, uh, I did a lot of research for the book. And I'll tell you, like, he had every reason, Sinatra, to think that President Kennedy would stay with him. Sure. He worked his heart out for President Kennedy. Mm-hmm. He worked his heart out to get him elected. He sang us. He, he really, I mean, think about I guess it's not as big a deal now because so many Hollywood stars get involved in politics. But he rewrote he and his 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 songman, I think Jimmy Van Heusen, rewrote High Hopes. High Hopes. And to, to make it about Kennedy, I mean, it just what he did for this guy. Mm-hmm. Now I understand, by the way, why why Attorney General Kennedy Bobby didn't want him to do it, didn't want his brother to stay there. He was going after the mob of Kennedy. And Sinatra was friends with mobsters, literally friends with mobsters. Yeah. And do we think that the boys, uh, Robert and Jack, John, actually understood what happened in that election and how Mo, Moji, and Kana swung it in favor for for John? I mean, it's it's a it's a good question. Um, I don't. I think a lot. I'll tell you who I think knew was the ambassador, Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, because he met with and some of this is in the book, but he met with Sinatra and he wanted Sinatra's help and Sinatra's help in getting to people who would help the Kennedys get elected, help John John F. Kennedy get elected. So before even Illinois. The, the, uh, the general election, there was the West Virginia primary. Because remember, the mobs at, the, at that time had a lot of connections with labor unions. And in some places, if you have the support of a labor, labor union, you're going to win, period. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's whether it's mine workers or electrical workers or whatever. And Ambassador Kennedy uh, met with Sinatra and talked about getting help in the primaries. Now, what did Jack and Bobby know? I doubt 
they knew all the details. Jack, I think, didn't want to know the details. Maybe Bobby did. Maybe Bobby did. I don't know. But one of the key moments in all of this, in the breakdown and the breakup of Sinatra and JFK, which is, you know, is kind of the, the subtext for the book, is that Ambassador Kennedy had his stroke, a devastating stroke in December 1961. Mm. And that was Sinatra's real in with the family. And then mm-hmm. from then on, Bobby was in charge and Bobby couldn't have cared less about Sinatra. And Bobby was, I mean, they would call him a Puritan. They'd call him a choir boy, the Sinatra team, the Brad Pack. They did. They thought he was a goody goody because, you know, he didn't live the life that they did. Well, you're, if you're John <clears throat> or Bobby on November 22nd, 1963, you wake up that morning and think of who your enemies are. Think of who is enraged at you, the mafia, the military industrial complex, the CIA, which he says he's going to break into a thousand pieces. He says he's going to end the Vietnam War, which is a $238 billion cash machine per year at that time. Those are his enemies today. The Cubans and the Soviets, don't forget. Oh, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> Why not throw the Cubans and the Soviets in? Like, do you like, do you do um, when uh, Chris was talking about the uh, the impressions I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, again, not a good impressionist. I'd like I, I like to say that like I'm I am a good I, I am like a dog that can can catch a frisbee or a monkey that can ride a bike. People are like, oh look, look at the anchor, do something that's like passable. You know, so it's, it's not good. But I do, the difference to me, and I had this conversation with Conan too, the difference for me between Robert Kennedy and John F. Kennedy is just timber. It's just, Robert Kennedy's up here. I thought only little girls giggled, Mr. Giancana, and then you go down, and, and Jack Kennedy, it's the same accent, but it's deeper and it's slower. Yeah. But That's you can do good. it much better than that. No, 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 no. I've, I've never done either one of them. That's beautifully done. I would add a little nasality to Robert. Yeah. But um, I studied Kennedy's inaugural address because when I started studying Clinton, I couldn't get him at first because something was nagging at me. And when I, it, I, night after night for months, what is wrong? What is, stop. And it was that he was doing somebody. That's what was bothering me. He was putting his comma in illogical places, like like John did, like JFK did when the, in the Ted Sorensen uh, inaugural address. And I was like, "That's it. That's his hero." So I got the address, inaugural address, and I started doing it in a southern accent. And Clinton came to life for me. Oh my like, god, that's amazing! Is that a good story? That's a great story. That's a fantastic. <laughs> yeah, story. it's like he's an icon. Yeah. I mean. There are only so many iconic presidential impressions, and yours of Clinton is is one of them. I mean, there yeah. aren't, you know, Farrell did Bush, nobody did Obama. Uh, I don't, I don't. I, I, Will I'll, and I, I got a little mileage out of Al Gore for a couple of years. Oh yes, long Yeah, that was after great. those debates. I was I was covering Gore during that period. And I remember um, I, I covered those debates. You know, they showed Gore your impression of him. And remember how screwed up his debate performance was? I, he, yeah, yeah. And it, I have two <clears throat> two thoughts on that. The first is 
you know, whereas George W. Bush is utterly himself out there, utterly himself out there, and really not listening to debate coaches and just being <laughs> like the closest thing to a regular guy I've ever seen in a president, right? Yeah, fair. But Gore had these coaches, and he was trying to apply some of the some of the tips. This is my surmise. Some of the tips they had all given him, and he had too many hand gestures. You know, n- normal people have four, five, six hand gestures, and for except for Clinton, who has thirty-eight, which is unbelievable. Is that an actual number, thirty-eight? Like you actually? But know Gore about was it. doing too much out there, man. <laughs> he was employing too many strategies. And the the second thought is, if you've ever spent any time with him, especially if he's around his family, when he's just kicking back. He's relaxed and warm and funny. I remember seeing him in the talent office at, at SNL, and I went, that's the president right there. Yeah. That likable, have a beer and dance with the wife kind of guy that he was. But he, he listened to all the coaches, and it didn't do good for him. So, you know, the first debate, he had sort of an overbearing school teacher thing about him. He had all those sighs, remember? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot all about the size. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome! And they were yeah. split screening it. It was like it was like I, I think uh, maybe this isn't true, but it feels like it was. It feels true, which is that it was the first time they ever did split screen during a presidential debate. It feel. I mean, oh. and if it wasn't, then it was the first time that like it, <laughs> the reactions were instead of just like listening or taking notes, it was oh. You know. <laughs> I mean, Daryl's Daryl's talked about, I mean, before how much preparation he puts in and research he does from when he does an impression. Al Gore I mean, has 38 hand motions. And I think he no, meant that as an actual Clinton, number. Clinton. Clinton. Uh, Clinton yeah. Clinton. Yeah. What, I mean, you don't have to give all 38, but the only one I know is this one. So what <laughs> else is there besides this one? Look at his, oh, look at his first address to Congress. The things he does with his hands. This, oh, and this, by the way, he has incredible hands. Yeah. Oh, Clinton. Really long fingers. Yes, I went to the uh, the wax Twice museum. Popular. <laughs> I, went, I went to uh, the wax museum in DC and I, I checked the fingers because I remember seeing that when I was around him. And um, they also told me J Lo came there to check the dimensions of her booty. <laughs> but that was exciting to hear while I checked out Clinton's hands; they were completely <laughs> accurate. And a tall guy. Yeah, six two, six three, real presence. Obviously, not uh, the last time I saw him in person, he was doing the shake thing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because he had he's had the heart problems. And I don't know, it, but his hand was shaking. It was backstage somewhere and his hand was shaking a little, which, you know, whatever. He's in his 60s and, and or maybe even older now. Um, and I guess he must be in his 70s at this point. And and uh, <clears throat> anyway, it's incredible yeah. to think of the fact of, of, of didn't somebody like. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama are all younger than Joe Biden. Yeah. Bush did, but Bush did this fascinating thing when I was watching him, when I could be there in a room with him. And I noticed he's the only person, let alone, I've never seen another person, let alone a president of the United States, actually stop talking in the middle of a sentence because they've lost interest in that sentence. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm talking about? Like, that's how yeah. utterly himself he was. He'd be talking to someone, and he'd be going, you know, I appreciate your hard work, and uh, just, uh, uh, 
I appreciate you. <laughs> and split. Um, one thing. One thing I wanted to mention. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, Daryl, uh, you, you had a lot of preparation time with Trump because he was such a public figure already before he even got <clears> into <throat> politics. Um, one of my favorite things that you've talked about in the past is Trump's kind of word salad type of speeches that he gives. Oh yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. I, Trump would leave a person with a feeling. They wouldn't be thinking necessarily about the facts he laid out not so much as he imparted. So I was telling Chris the other day I was watching um, <clears throat> the movie Duck Soup with the Marx Brothers, right? Oh, so and good. Gra- yeah, and Groucho has this line in there where he goes, with a hey, nanani and a ha cha cha right? And I thought to myself, <laughs> I said to myself, that's how Trump should end all of his talks. Because if you listen to if you listen to him, he's not really saying anything. He's throwing out like this word salad, like this sort of distortion field, sort of like uh, <clears throat> no collusion and east is east and west is west. And if you take cranberries and stew them like applesauce. They taste much more like prunes than rhubarb. Okay, right? <laughs> what the hey, nan, nani, and a hot cha cha? Are you laughing? <laughs> is anybody laughing at that? Is that just yes, hilarious? yes, it's hilarious, dude. That's I'm, great. I'm, uh, I'm not muted, am I? I'm like, no, I'm, no. It's very know, funny. That's great, <laughs> man. Um, um, I really love the your the way you paint Sinatra walking through a room, you know, I just, you know, it's, it's back in that period where I think Marilyn Monroe and Dean Martin's biography walked into a bar once in Vegas and said, there are no good white hats and no black hats anymore. Cause the mob would be sitting there with Sinatra who would be sitting there with an ambassador who would be yeah. sitting there. And, and the way the pic, the way you picture him, Walking through the room, what's the, his wife's name? Is Margaret? Charlie's, yeah, Charlie. Yeah. yeah. When Margaret sees him walk through a room for the first time, it's kind of electrifying. Like this guy was just bringing the the power and the sexuality and the glamour, and he knew it. Yeah, he was. Well, thank you so much. That's so nice of you to say. I mean, he was a you know once in a generation type of presence uh, and everything but at the same time a very mercurial i think probably had bipolar disorder or something uh, because he was you know he he had a lot of real and it wasn't just like a star's fury like he could get away with it i mean i think he really legitimately uh had i mean he, he attempted suicide a few times after the ava gardner um, divorce. Um, and he oh, had yeah. real, he had real low lows. I mean, I think in a, in a different era, he would have been a happier person, but I also think he's a guy who had his heart legitimately broken twice by Ava Gardner and by president Kennedy. I mean, I think he loved platonically, but loved president Kennedy. He were, here was the class that he could never, he could never embody. You know, he was this tough from the streets of Hoboken. He was never going to be, he could, it didn't matter how rich and powerful he got. He was never going to be classy. And here was John F. Kennedy who just made everything, everything look effortless. And um, 
so yeah, he had a real magnetism, but at the same time, there was just like a a chasm of of, of insecurity uh, and and heartache. I think. And it seems like Ava Gardner just laid his soul to waste. You know, she seems borrow. like a very everything I read about her. She seems like just kind of a cruel person. I mean, just kind of a, a she just didn't love him anymore. I mean, she she left him. She went to go shoot a movie, and she just. I mean, they always had a tempestuous relationship in this and that, but she just left yeah. him for a matador. She just left him Whoa. for a matador. Oh God, that's horrible. <laughs> but everybody, oh, you know, back then, I mean, there's uh, Janet Lee is a character in the book, and she in in real life, Tony Curtis had just left her for his 17 year old co star in whatever movie they were making. And I mean, th- I mean, I know that Hollywood relationships are kind of wacky today even you talked about j-lo and i'm thinking immediately i think oh she and ben are back together you know like i I, I, even though that's not my scene i still everybody knows that kind of thing but back then i feel like they were just everybody was sleeping with everybody and it was and they were mean about it i just feel like everybody was just just they didn't care it was just there was a heartlessness to it maybe it's the same today i don't know is a prime example of that I sometimes listen. I, I will tell you, I've heard from before I even came to LA. The difference between LA and New York is, in New York, if don't you don't get the job, they're going to tell you. They're going to let you know, and probably give you some honest reason that you didn't get it. You know, LA man, they they can leave you hanging forever. Yeah, ever. I mean, the, there has been a coldness um, out here. Um, of course, now that I know more people here, I've, it's different. But when I first came here, boy, it was brutal. Auditioning at the Laugh Factory and the, the producer walks out. You know, he walks out of the room, throws his arms in the air and says, how dare you bring me this amateur? I mean, the stuff people would say to me on the way up. Did you have that? Did you have anyone who was saying to you, hey, Jake, maybe you better turn back. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I had like, so like many you... people in my, on my way to up the, up the journalism, uh, chain. I, I mean, up the ladder. It, it, it's t- no, I mean, cause it starts off when I decided I wanted to be a journalist. Um, it was like a light. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I started just doing stupid stuff. I, I worked for, a friend of the family who ran for Congress and then uh, and then I worked in PR and, you know, whatever, just and anything. Just to, and I was trying to figure I was trying to do a comic strip. I was trying to write a novel. I was just I wanted to do something creative, but I didn't know how to get there. And then I was on a ski trip and somebody was reading. This is in the 90s. And somebody was reading The New Republic and the, they, had, they had a friend who had written a freelance article for The New Republic. And it was a light bulb going off like, oh, my God, like contemporaries of mine can just you can just write a story and, and, or, you know, write, write it and pitch it and you get published. And, you know, it was just, I didn't even occur to me. And I started doing that. And in those freelance years, boy, were people mean, mm. Oh my God. And um, I mean, just, just mm. a lot of, and look, I know that when editors get millions of submissions and this and that, although this is kind of before the internet. So it was, wasn't really, as bad as I'm sure it is now, where it was like, you know, faxing in ideas to people. But I mean, there were, and by the same token, there were a lot of really nice people, obviously that took a shot at me and took a shot on me and, and all that. 
But yeah, no, I mean, and I, whenever I am asked to speak to young people, the very first thing I always say is there is so much more rejection out there than you have been conditioned to experience because you have been safely ensconced in your world of high school and college where there are literally people who are assigned to make sure that you are psychologically well. There are guidance counselors and resident advisors and teaching assistants and people want to make sure you're okay. All of a sudden you're in the real world. No one's making sure that you're okay. And there is so much rejection. And like, I just, I try to like, I, and you know, even though there is a fear that I'm like going to scare the crap out of them in this commencement address or, or talking to a visiting class, I want people to know because there is so much. And if, and if I listen to it, you know, I would still be some public relations and people who are in public relations. It's great. I nothing against it or anything like that, but I was so bad at it and so unhappy doing it. Um, I would still be doing it, you know, and miserable. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I can't, it, it, I mean, you have like, you're somebody who has given me so much pleasure for decades. I mean, I still think about your, your, your work on SNL and the idea that people rejected you or were mean to you when you first came out to LA that's before or after SNL you're saying you're saying before yeah I mean I I I I did a a brief stint on a sketch comedy show in Nashville and was let go I mean the guy was like I just don't think you have it you know the comic strip owner said sent me home going I don't think you need to come back here because he pointed to the wall and there's Farley and there's Eddie Murphy and there's Chris Rock and there's, you know, Adam Sandler. He's going, he goes, I don't think you have it, Daryl. They have it. And I don't think you do. And I remember going back to my cold water, cold, freezing, not enough. I had to jump the turnstiles thinking maybe I had to turn back. Yeah. You know? Yeah someone people were saying to me that time go back to florida dude the guy at the comic strip just said you suck right interestingly one day when i uh, i had already done a white house correspondence dinner so i was doing pretty good and i get a phone call from one of the pages during one of the shows and they say it's so and so from the comic strip he wants to know if he can come up I've re- I had rehearsed for three years what I was going to say to that guy. Right? Oh, my God. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but all I said to him was, I just can't do it right now. Maybe another time. Shit. Damn. I thought, I, I had my chance. No, you did the right thing. You did the right yeah. thing. Yeah, you, you better to take the high road there. But, uh, yeah, man. I, Boy, would it have been nice to, to give him a piece of your mind, huh? I think it was Meyer Lansky who told sort of stressed with Lucky Luciano and maybe that's the wrong guy. I thought it was Meyer Lansky who said something like, don't, you know, score a, prof- a personal victory in a professional situation. Yeah. The, the two things aren't the same and it's bad for business or something. So I remember that. I was like, John F. Kennedy said, forgive your enemies, but remember their names. That's kind of always oh, been my, uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, was that that's John? A- that's a yeah. powerful quote right there. Forgive your enemies, but remember their names. It just means, to me, that means you don't have to stew in in anger, but you don't have to, you don't have to like help them. Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to help them. You know what I mean? Like you have a limited reservoir of 
assistance and attention you can provide and better to do it for the people that are yeah. that, that have been nice to you and have you know given you a helping hand but also you yeah. need those you need those type of people that have you know held you back or, or said those things because it gives you motivation to do better to be that better you know person comic whatever you know it's you, know. that's a nice way to that's a nice way to look at it i don't i could have done without the motivation <laughs> yeah. but you know it does it, you know obviously when you look back at it you're like oh yeah like you know the hell with that guy but like you know if sometimes for me certain things when somebody tells me no in the business it's it just makes me want to work harder to get to what i was trying to get you know and and i you know i feel like there's some motivation there but no i hear you look i mean the reason I left ABC News for CNN was I wanted to be an anchor, and ABC News was not going to provide me with an opportunity to be an anchor. I mean, they just weren't. They were they were tr- doing everything they could to keep me, but there was just no path to being an anchor. Um, and so I left. Um, yeah. And well, it's safe to say you made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel good about the decision, but I'm just saying, like, um, the rejection never. It never stops, really. I mean, you know, I mean, like, you know, even after you've succeeded in one level, then there's the, the next level. And uh, I just think I think if especially if there's anybody young listening to us right now, you just need to the faith in yourself. I have seen people in Washington, D.C., journalists who, you know, I didn't think they were all that or anything, but like through just sheer force of will and determination became, you know, professional journalists. And like, I see their bylines and like, I mean, if you work and you show up and you have the faith in yourself, it it can work. I know, I don't know that the same holds true for comedy because I mean, journalism is, is much easier skill than comedy. (laughs) Uh, My, my attitude was if the guy has more talent than me, I can outwork him. Right. If he cannot work me, I've got more talent than him. One way or another, I'm gonna, I'm going to. I, when I was 27 years old, I decided I would make little incremental improvements, like one tiny improvement a week. I was like, one way or another, I'm gonna outwork them because I'd already been turned around by SNL twice, and I was like, no, nope, not, I'm not quitting. It's so easy. It's so much easier to try really hard in difficult circumstances than it is to quit. Yeah, I agree. I find the quitting part of it impossible. Yeah. Tell me about, can I ask you a question as long as I have you? Tell me about the documentary. Um, Michelle Ezrick, uh, the director of the documentary, came to me about seven years ago and said, I'm thinking about making a if documentary. You don't mind, if, you don't mind, if you don't mind. I mean, I don't. No, I no, mean, no. I mean, you know, the film was produced by Geraldine Dreyfus and Regina Scully, the, who have more Oscar, or, uh, Emmy nominations than and you can count. And she said, what if we could make this one movie? And what if the movie was really good? And what if you ended up helping somebody, right? What if there was one kid like you that you could help? Because you're dispensing information from the greatest doctors in the world. I mean, the very best doctors in the whole world, people 20, 30, 40 years ahead of their time. What if you had that information when you were 10, when you were 12, when you were 20? What if, and, and I, suddenly I got sold on it. I was like, you know, what if someone does get help? All right. So they followed me around for seven years. It's incredible. And put all these genius doctors in there saying things that 
you know, the hallelujah moment in my whole life was uh, this genius doctor said to me, you're this way because of something that happened. And that was my hallelujah chorus moment for me. I was like, oh, my God. He goes, and we're, but he was just enough of a genius to be able to figure out what it was. But um, Have you heard that, from anybody that, that – that, that- I've seen the letters. There are thousands of letters. It's oh, yeah. translated. He, he gets so many messages on social media. People send them to me to pass along to him all the time. That doesn't surprise how me many at all. People, yeah, how many people that he has helped and people that can relate and say, oh, my God, like I, I, someone understands me. Someone understands what I've gone through for years, and there's, there's, there's hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. And so, I, I mean, I'm personally glad to see that that got made and that he did it. And it's amazing. So many people are. It's amazing to me that, like, two, two subjects that we all deal with, struggle and death, are, like, among the least discussed subjects on the planet. I mean, and when I say struggle, I mean personal struggle. Struggle yeah. and death whether it's addiction or trauma or whatever, struggle and death, we all have it. There's so little conversation about it. Yeah, uh, I, feel, I feel like it's, it's finally, I feel the times are, are changing a little bit. Yes. I'm hearing more and more stuff about mental health and, and, and therapy. And you feel like, you know, back in the day, I mean, I grew up, you know, 80s and like, you know, I, I never heard any of this stuff growing up. I never heard anybody talk about mental health and, and seeking help and talking to anybody to if you had any sort of things going on. And, and now I feel like more and more people like Daryl, you know, even sports stars, uh, uh, Kevin Love comes to mind, you know, is a, a basketball player and he's come out and talked about the importance of mental health and, and dealing with it and getting treatment and, and just admitting, just admitting, you know, Hey, look, I struggle just like everyone else. And, you know, maybe you struggle too. And maybe me talking about this will help. And so that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez just, the other day talked about uh, being in therapy because of uh, the January 6th. Um, And and that's an amazing thing to admit. I mean, that's amazing. It shouldn't be, but it it is, but But I agree, but it is. And it's also a reminder that while there are people who are brave, like AOC or Daryl or whatever, out there talking about these things openly with AOC. And I didn't, I haven't seen anything negative about Daryl at all. Thank God. Although I'm sure social media is social media. Um, But AOC, remember, like after she said how traumatic it was, right-wingers started attacking her. People started attacking her, members of Congress, people on Fox, mocking her, mocking her uh, trauma, even though she was very clear that the trauma she experienced was triggered from previous um, sexual assault trauma. Anyway, just that it is difficult because there are, there are bad people or ignorant people willing to, to, yeah, I hope that I I hope your experience now has all been positive. I hope it's all been. Well, I mean, you know, the crime wasn't what was, what hat, what was done to me. The crime was being expected not to talk about it. Right. That's the crime. And so, you know, when my mother died, I was still afraid of her and, uh, uh, I couldn't wait to scream my head off. Let me tell you what was happening, you know? So in that house, I mean, you know, on my tombstone, I wish it's I, I, if if there was something that sort of hinted of a legacy, I would say the phrase "mental illness is not an airborne virus." Okay, right. it comes from somewhere very specific. It's got a story and it's treatable. 
you know, I know that there are chemical imbalances. Okay. I don't know what percentage of the time that causes mental illness, but I've been to the toniest nut houses in the whole world. <laughs> I never saw it. I never saw someone, all I got to do is block this ensign. I got a beta blocker and now I'm fine. <laughs> no. No, it was just a beta blocker. That's all I needed. <laughs> well, you know, well, if, it, if anybody's listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Daryl's documentary. It's on Netflix, still streaming. It's been translated into multiple languages. Uh, it's called Cracked Up. Um, obviously, uh, it's amazing. And I, I think that everyone should take a watch and take, take a look and see maybe if it could help you, you know? Definitely. I really recommend watching it um, in Cantonese. It really it's has something. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> if you watch the Cantonese version or Hmong, if you watch it in the in the Hmong version also, it adds, just adds a little adds something. Adds a little something, yeah. <laughs> How many languages has it been? I mean, I, I've had nothing ever translated into anything. I barely speak English anyway, but how many languages has it been translated into? I think five. Uh, well, That's incredible. Four or five, but... You know, you still got to give credit to the producers and the director, Gerald and Dreyfus. That's your story and your courage, but yeah. Well, okay. They followed me around and yeah, I I did my part. Yeah. It's like being (laughs) at SNL and you're surrounded by all these Emmy winners doing stuff for you, like hair, makeup, wardrobe, producers, everyone there's got more Emmys. They don't have enough room in their dressing room for their Emmys and you're being helped by them. And, you know, I would just do my little part. I would do my part. I, <laughs> Let me I ask you a it. question. When I met Sudeikis, uh, he, I asked him one time what, what his favorite skit was. And he named this incredibly obscure skit. And you know how you know better than me that the writer's skit is the one they do at like 1255. Like the one. The last the one. one. The one that they, they beg to get on air. And finally, Lauren's like, fine. And it's like right before the end of the show. Right. The 1255 one. That's always the one that the writers love. And, uh, and and nobody else. Are you the same? Were your favorite skits the ones like the weirder, obscurer ones, or was it like the the Bush Gore debates? Uh, I thought my favorite skits were the ones I didn't suck in, because you know you don't have time to prepare. And there were times like you know when I did Bobby Knight and Lauren didn't put a laugh track in for me, he just let that thing bomb, and <laughs> you know. Thankfully, over the years, you know, over the years, I think it's been edited out of reruns or something. But, you know, there were there were characters that uh, that I did that just weren't good. And mercifully, they usually didn't make it on air. But I mean, I remember one time I was doing I was going to debut a Tony Soprano impression. We're doing this thing. With Molly Shannon, where she's playing the 50 year old dancer, and she, you know, we're at the bottom being it's a strip club, and out comes Molly. I had played Dan Rather three minutes earlier. During that time, I got pancake in my mouth, I got glue in my eye, and a scaffolding had fallen on my head. Oh my and God. Three minutes later, I'm walking over there to start this scene, and they show me the, the cue cards. I've never seen the dialogue before. Never seen the dialogue before. I don't oh, they know. They changed what. it right before you went on? Oh. Yes. Yes, sometimes they're writing when they're walking down the stairs at 11, yeah. 29, and 30 seconds. Yes, they do. And oh, that's man. the gig, you know. But yeah. it threw me off so bad that I couldn't do Tony Soprano, but I did do a decent Marlon Brando. <laughs> 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 I just, like, started doing Marlon Brando, and I'm like uh, – 
she's such a stuffy, huh? You know, like, it's just like, what, what is you know, so bad, so bad, so bad. Oh. Did anybody, did, did Lauren or anybody ever, you know, mention Nobody that? Nobody cared because I got the laughs. You still did it, yeah. You, you I still did. got the laughs. Yeah. And Lauren's like, I don't care. I was like, I'm sorry, I slipped into Brando, into, you know, in an Aliyah Kazan movie there, Lauren. He's like, you got the laughs. The ball went in the seats. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's close enough, to be completely honest. It's yeah. close enough. It's pretty close, yeah. Do you think, had, top, do you, do you think top three is um, Gore, not in this order, but Gore, Clinton, Connery? My personal ones? Well, uh, but my, do both. My, do, do popularity and also your favorite. I loved when I did Donahue with... Um, Oh yeah, with Dana, <laughs> I I loved that character. Um, I loved. I only got to do Robert Stack one time. Uh, how did, I, why did you do Robert Stack? You kind of oh, like I don't know Stack. why. I can't remember <laughs> when they it was. They were doing. You know, he used to do those those movies. I think on on Turner Classic Movies, or, or he would do like mystery shows. Yeah, unsolved mysteries. And the phrase was, "Could there be a link? Could there be a link?" You know. <laughs> And uh, I really love doing that. Um, let's see. Uh, I I uh, I loved playing um, Johnny Cochran, um, but that one didn't make it onto the air. Um, I love. What did you? John Connery like, not really not in your, John Connery not in your list. Well, Sean Connery wasn't supposed to happen, man. It was like. You know, the audiences, my understanding of comedy is the audience has to understand your premise and kind of agree with it to be able to laugh at your punchline. So it made no sense, and no one was going to buy the idea that Sean Connery was stupid. It made no sense that he hated Alex Trebek. <laughs> it made no sense that he was homophobic. <laughs> and I am thought, no one, and I remember, you know, Will Ferrell was like right across the hall from me. And I'm 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 working on this impression of Sean Connery, and I'm doing lines from the movie, you know, the untouch, Untouchables, like you know, okay, pal, why the Mahashka, you know, and you don't have to think about it, just nod, you know, and <laughs> and, and then Will's over here, and for reasons still unapparent to me, I I turned over here and I went, not he was working on Alex Trebek, right, right? so I lean out the door and I go, not a fan of the ladies, are you Trebek? <laughs> Thereby cementing my only niche in history in Western civilization. I go to colleges and kids from other countries are 18 holding up signs, lines from, from those celebrity jeopardies. And I, thought, I said to myself, I said to a friend of mine one time, I was like, I knew I'd go down for something. <laughs> But I didn't think it would be for saying, you know, you know I'll take I'll take famous titties for six hundred. I mean, that's the legacy, Jake. Did you? I think you're. I think it's more than just that. I think you, I think there are a few a few things that you could put in your comedy pantheon beyond just Connery. But it is a great one. Did you ever hear back from him? And did you mourn when he passed away in the last few months? Uh, yeah. Um, I grew rather fond of him over the years. And there's a guy that people couldn't get enough with of as well. All I know is on the tonight show, he was very kind to me, you know, but I never actually spoke to him the way I spoke to Donahue or, or Clinton or Gore or Trump or any of those guys, you know, my brother and I will have an entire conversation 
doing Connery impressions, which I assume is just us doing you doing Connery the way that anybody well, who impresses George does an impression of George H.W. Bush is actually just doing Dana Carvey doing George H.W. Bush. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Mustard. Because, Mustard. Yeah. What? Mustard. Mustard. Okay. How about these? I'm going to give you some lines. Um, people would say, how did you get such filthy stuff on TV? Right. Mm-hmm. On network television, we would have like a dress rehearsal and in the dress rehearsal, we would have Connery say lines that were so unimaginably vile, Jay, <laughs> that the censors had to choose between them and your mother's a whore. Okay? That was their choice, going to air. I mean, there was an example one night. Will Farrell, as Trebek, said to me, Mr. Connery, you're despicable. As Connery, I said... You didn't say that last night when I was pumping Mugu Guy Pan all over your tonsils. <laughs> Jake. I'm sorry. <laughs> Pretend you didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah. so the, censors, the censors passed on that one. No, they were like, let him, let them, like, no, just let him say your mother's a whore. That's fine. No more 007 in Mugu Guy Pan, okay? Mother's a whore is okay. And you can say something about his mustache. <laughs> But even Will's a, impression of Trebek wasn't really an impression of Trebek, though, right? I mean, it was it wasn't it was it, just a creation. It was well, yeah, it was Connery it was, was which is just as effective. It's a version right. he it, it, he created something close enough to Trebek. I mean, the good thing about you know doing Alex or the hard thing about doing Alex Trebek is he's famous for what he says, but not how he says it, right? You know. It's like Bob Costas or, or Jake Tabber. You're, you're famous for what you say, but it's not necessarily the way you say it. So there wasn't a lot to, to work with, like, for instance, with Bob Costas, which was such a flop for me. Because I couldn't grab, I couldn't get a hook. And for a whole year, man, I did gore on stage, I'm going to say 200 times in Greenwich Village. Not a single laugh. Not a single laugh. And it wasn't until that first debate where people go, oh, that's who he is. Oh, it was perfect. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Lockbox. Was that the yeah. first one? Lockbox? It was so good. Yeah, that was the lock spot in Strategery. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be out there with Will and not laugh was really hard. It was so hard when I would, I would look over at him. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, I mean, Alex Trebek also had a great sense of humor. I mean, he came on the show, a cameo appearance. He always, I, I saw an interview, he talked very fondly of how, uh, you know, honored he was that you guys were spoofing him, for lack of a better term. And, you know, yeah, because, a because he, he's a class act. He, he, was, he was the central figure. It's like a, a situation comedy. Like, it's like Seinfeld. You have this one guy, and we're seeing it through his point of view. The world is going mad around him. But he's, <laughs> right, he's the normal person. He's the normal one. Mm-hmm. He actually looked very good in those sketches. You know, it's funny. It's like um, uh, I read a, an article. My brother, my um, son and I, my brothers and my son are very similar, so I confuse them sometimes. My son, who's 11, and I uh, watch The Simpsons together all the time. And we're just enthralled by this one episode. Uh, it's called steamed hams. It's, 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 it's 21 short films about Springfield. And there's, it's just complete insanity where uh, superintendent Chalmers goes to principal Skinner's house for dinner. And it's just an insane, it's an insane thing. I, it's, if you Google it, you'll, you can watch it. It's very funny. But in any case, 
I read a whole, there was like a whole history of that one vignette. And it, and uh, one of the writers, I think Bob Oakley was like, he said, Chalmers is the only normal person in Springfield. He is the only normal, rational human being. Every single other person in Springfield is insane. And he is the only, and that's what Trebek is in that skit. You have people acting so dumb. Tom Hanks playing himself as an idiot, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody, yeah. uh, 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 Norm doing a, a great Burt Reynolds impression. Yeah. A great As a impression. moron, as a moron. The, the, the premise yeah. that all actors are morons is, <laughs> yes. also, is hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, and Ben Stiller doing that that wicked um, Tom Cruise impression. Oh God, he's so good at that. Yeah, it was it was just the, the way they put that together. So great, and and Connery being stupid. But I think after, after a while they had the sense that Connery's not stupid. He for some reason he wants to fuck with Alex Trebek. I don't know why. But it wasn't just that he was stupid. It was that he was he was so mean. He, he was just so he was just so mean to. Tre- Trebek. I mean, he just hated him so much, uh-huh. and that, and there, there was no reason to hate him. And that was really the essence of the comedy. The show, the, the the skit is premised on the fact they're all stupid, but the life of it, the heart of that skit is why is Sean Connery so mean to Alex Trebek? Yeah, and that's what I mean when I say there's it, it, the audience can't accept the premise. It doesn't make sense, but they did in this case. And you know, you know, I think it was Leno that said. You can't really educate the crowd and get them to laugh at the same time. You can't show them something they don't agree with or understand and get a, a laugh. But we did with Sean Connery. Yeah, right? well, they just because it was just so funny, and it and it was from from the beginning, from the birth of it. Not a yeah. fan of the ladies, are you, Trebek? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Man. That's pretty good. I have I have a line for you to say, uh, Jake, as Connery. You ready? Yeah. Here's the line. You're lucky I could have been your father, but the dog beat me over the fence. You're lucky. I could have been your father, but the dog beat me over the fence. <laughs> it's not bad. It's it's not, again, not again bad. It's, a monkey, it's a monkey riding a bicycle. I get it. I understand. <laughs> well, I if newscasting doesn't work out for you, I think, <laughs> yeah. think Daryl right. knows somebody over at Saturday Night Live. I'll be huge in Toledo. <laughs> Well, um, I, I don't mean to cut it short, but I mean, man, we've had a, just an excellent time having you on today, man. And uh, The Devil May Dance is in bookstores right now. And it's an audio book too, correct? Or no? It is. I did not do the audio book. Uh, they got a professional. I did the audio book of the first one, The Hellfire Club. And uh, as has been pointed out, I was I was fired from my own book for the second one, the audio book. <laughs> People decided to go with a, a professional, Rob Shapiro. But that's okay, actually, because I did not want to even try to do Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean oh, Martin no. and no. Frank Sinatra and like mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Kennedys. I, uh, that's really much all I have. That's all I got. I mean, well, I for, don't for want, your I, next I, book, we, we got Mr. Daryl Hammond. Uh, you know, he could jump in with a couple. I would not want the job of having to do all those those guys either. I mean, that is a big job and you might fail. You might fail. And also, um, you know, I don't want to hear from Piscopo afterwards. Right. He's a stick. He's a stickler. Right. Right. Yeah. Sinatra. I don't know. I don't want to touch it. You know, after he did Sinatra, I'm like, okay, I'm never doing Sinatra. But they made a skit about, I'm sorry, I know we're about to stop, but I'll just say, no, it's okay. I'm sure you know this, but like apparently Piscopo got, so this is from like the history of Santa Live or something that I read, but like apparently they, they, Piscopo got so focused on what would Frank do and what would Frank not do when they were pitching skits 
that they ended up doing a whole skit called What Would Frank Do? It was like a game <laughs> show just based on how annoying Piscopo was in the writer's room. I mean, that's, yeah. I think I think I read that somewhere. Fascinating where that came where that where that came from. Uh, I mean, that's like a or that place is like a a biosphere that people go to starting Monday night and leave Saturday night at two o'clock in the morning and just sitting around shooting the breeze, walking down the stairs, saying so hello to the, in the hallway. And the next thing you know, it's a bit. Um, oh, let me give you a compliment, by the way, you know, I knew and know Monica Lewinsky. And when I was friends with her before the scandal, I'd actually gone on a date with her. And I was friends really? with her throughout the whole, yeah, one oh, wow. innocent, one innocent G-rated date. And <laughs> I, I was friends with her throughout the scandal and, and everything. And um, I, she, I was in the audience when she guest starred yeah. or had a cameo on SNL. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. was the guest. And you were on, Daryl, right? You, you played Clinton. And we she, had I remember, yeah, I remember her kiss. telling me. And we had a kiss. Her, and I remember her telling me how incredibly nice you were to her. How incredibly nice. And that's a woman who has not been shown the kindness by the world that she deserves. She is a good hearted person. And you were very kind to her. Well, I really liked her, man. Yeah. She's eminently likable. Just a a really cool person. Got a Got a chance to do something untoward with the president of the United States. He may have assisted in putting together (laughs) that union. Um, she was like, I got to write a book. Do you know what people think about me? I mean, do you know what people think when they think my name? I got to write a book. And she had written a book at that time. I liked her a lot. She was really cool to be around. But you were kind and that's important. I, I, I enjoy following her on Twitter. She's actually great on Twitter. Uh, you know, just a real, like, it really gives, gives you an insight to, uh, you know, what kind of person she is. And it's, it's, it's delightful, you know? Well, thank you so much, guys. This was so yeah, nice. The devil made Let me know what is, it's going to post, and I'll help. Uh, I'll help. Uh, push oh, that'd it out be great. Uh, one last question. I mean, this is such an interesting yeah. story uh, about that that you've written about in the Devil May Dance. Do you ever see this becoming a movie? Well, oh, I've been. I've yeah. Been, yeah. I mean, I'd love to. I mean, right now, should. we're tr- <laughs> we're trying to get the Hellfire Club made into a, a TV show, and Mark Smith, who wrote The Revenant and has written some other amazing stuff, uh, wrote a pilot, and it's really good. And, you know, Hollywood, it's one of the weirdest things because especially Daryl for Daryl and SNL where everything is, you know, it's, you got, it's, it's quick, right? You got the week here comes and whatever I'm in news, which is like my show's on in two hours. We got the Hollywood. It's a very slow metabolism, very slow. And so we're looking for producers right now and then we'll go shopping for directors and then we'll go shopping for stars, but it's a, it's a process. And it, but this would be the Devil May Dance would be season two of the series is the home. yeah I mean okay. it, it, it always happens a couple of years after it actually should right when all the ingredients are together it's just right everyone's in agreement to move on it and then, then they don't move on it they move on it a year later but oh a TV a movie I, I see it as an episodic with those characters yeah. I, I yeah, think it's just I, I, an excellent I, I, story yeah. and a great angle on it and uh, yeah, you I mean, know we don't want to see those guys for two hours only. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's those characters for five years. <laughs> Twelve. It's, it's a Jones. wonderful book. I mean, it's a wonderful angle on it. And uh, I know the New York Times has said some nice things about you as well uh, recently. Yeah, it was a nice review. I couldn't yes. believe it. 
So everybody go check out that book. Uh, it's in, uh, you know, bookstores online, anywhere you get your books these days. Uh, you know, uh, Jake Tapper, I really appreciate it. And so is Daryl. I know uh, you being here on our podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Daryl. A lot of fun. You guys, Absolutely. Jake, I hope we talk again someday. I'd love to. Yeah, when we tour together, we'll come to D.C. and we'll invite you. Make sure you come, uh, come out to one of our shows. <laughs> Sounds great. I'd love to. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, Daryl, I mean, what an, what an amazing guest. What an incredible dude. I mean, uh, I feel like we could have made this a two, two or three-hour podcast easily because he's Jake Tapper's book, uh, The Devil May Dance in Bookstores, like I mentioned already. And he's also obviously the lead anchor over at CNN. Uh, you know, he hosts a, a show called the, the Lead with Jake Tapper and uh, another show called State of the Union on CNN as well. Um, but yeah, what a great, great guest. And uh, I'm so honored that he did our show with us. And uh, man, we've, we've, been, we've been getting some really cool guests and, you know, hopefully Rob Lowe and some other great ones are on their way soon. Um, but yeah, if you guys haven't already, please make sure you add us on social media. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, he's at Daryl C. Hammond. I'm at Chris Millhouse with two L's. Our producers at Jim Search and uh, Jake Tapper, I believe it's just at Jake Tapper uh, or Jake Tapper CNN, something like that. Um, so maybe, you know, go check it out, uh, his book again. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank you guys for reviewing us. Thank you guys for telling a friend about our podcast. Uh, we'll be back uh, very soon with another uh, killer podcast. So keep on, uh, keep on listening and have a great week, guys. And see you soon. Take care.